Welcome to BioBased Radio, a podcast promoting a more sustainable future through conversations with industry, university, and environmentalists. Today, our host Denny Hall is talking with Jonathan Mayle. Director of the Bioenergy Technologies Office in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Hi, I'm Denny Hall, faculty emeritus at The Ohio State University and former director of OBIC, the Bioproducts Innovation Center. In my role at Ohio State, I direct a 20 university consortium for advanced bioeconomy leadership education. We also refer to this as CABLE. This podcast, BioBased Radio, is an outreach project of the CABLE program and funded by the USDA National Institute for Food and Agriculture. Today, Dr. Jonathan Mayle and I talk about his passion for bioenergy and bioproducts, the circular economy, and a designer approach to plastic. Today, it's our treat to have with us Dr. Jonathan Mayle, the uh, Director of the Bioenergy Technologies Office with the U.S. Department of Energy in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Dr. Mayle, would you uh, start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? I, I, I think it's exciting that we're going to have someone with this English accent on our bio-based radio program. I think you're the first. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Th- thank you so much for inviting me today, Denny. Um, I thoroughly enjoy talking about bioenergy and bioproducts, so this is a treat for me. Because um, I know you're interested in, um, you have a strong connection with students. I did my undergraduate work in applied chemistry at the University of Greenwich. I was then fortunate enough to be offered to do a PhD in Canada in Simon Fraser University, which is on top of Burnaby Mountain in British Columbia. That was very nice. And then I was fortunate enough to do, that was in organometallic chemistry. And then I was fortunate enough to do two postdocs, one at University of Oregon that was looking at uh, solvent cage dynamics some nice photochemistry there. And the second postdoc was at UC Berkeley, which was a lot of fun. That was looking at heterogeneous catalysts. Um, I was then, um, GE asked me to come and work at the GE Global Research Center for several years. I thoroughly enjoyed that. That was predominantly in catalysts. I then got an opportunity to join Pacific Northwest National Lab, uh, I looked at things like scintillators, catalysts for after-treatment, and then looked at some bioproducts. Go bioproducts, like that. Bioproducts bio through high-throughput screening. That was a lot of fun. And then one day somebody came into my office and said, how do you feel about working in Washington, D.C.? Would you be open to doing a detail? And I said, Okay. And they offered me to come and do a detail in 
the biomass office then. And so I did a two-year detail from 2008, so that we fiscal year 2009, fiscal year two, 2010. Then I went back to PNNL after the detail was over. And I was the biomass and biofuels uh, lab relationship manager for PNNL, interacting with the, the office. And then the opportunity to be director of the office came up one day. Yeah, I, I was just uh, I was curious how all of your background with catalyst and chemistry led you to be the lab relationship manager for biomass at PNNL. So specifically to that point, there's a lot of there's a lot of great work that gets done by biologists and biochemists. And equally, that's on the biological side for conversion. There's a lot of great work that gets done by chemists and catalyst experts who look at the catalytic conversion of biomass and intermediates that are subsequently made from biomass into biofuels and bioproducts. And that's, that, that's where the, the initial fit was. And then I grew to thoroughly enjoy uh, the area and the people that I work with and just took off from there. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell our listeners a little bit about what you do now as director of BDO. Absolutely. First and foremost, I have a phenomenal team. I am so fortunate to come to work every day and work with the team. They are awesome. They're, they're, they are really passionate about bioenergy and bioproducts and making a real impact for the nation, collaborating with universities and industry and national labs. And uh, it's a unique supply chain. The bioenergy supply chain, you go all the way from starting from a seed in the ground through harvesting it, logistics is one of our focus, feedstock logistics, storing of feedstocks. Biomass is inherently uh, prone to... Um, degrading if you leave it out in the elements and then breaking it down. Biomass is made from three polymers that we know of, hemicellulose, cellulose, and lignin. Breaking down those polymers into components, oligomers, monomers, that you then use as building blocks to perhaps build back up into the products you desire. And that could be bioproducts, biomaterials, could be power, um, it could be biofuels. The office tends to focus on biofuels and bioproducts, bioproducts that are co-produced to enable fuels. Bioproducts are very important because if you look at um, or take a leaf out of the uh, petroleum refinery playbook, the bulk of the carbon in a barrel of crude oil is used to make fuels on a carbon basis, while only about 14 17% is used to make products. However, the value that is derived from the products is around 800 billion. The value derived from the fuels is 900 billion. High value products in an integrated biorefinery help with the revenue stream to that refinery and also its uh, technology diversification and market diversification. And we've done analysis that shows that we have goals by 2022 to show a model mature cost of $3 for gallon, per gallon gasoline equivalent for biofuels 
and then by 2030 to go to $2.50 per gallon gasoline equivalent. We see you cannot get to $2.50 without making bioproducts, biomaterials that add to the total value of the biorefinery. Our team looks through conversion, um, all aspects of conversion. That includes biological processes, chemical processes, uh, catalytic processes. We're beginning to get really interested in um, electrochemical processes for activation of, let's say, waste. And we'll come back to that. And also a key aspect for our sector is the integration of research areas or unit operations into a process. You don't have anything until you have a resilient process that works day in, day out. And so we go all the way up to typically pilot scale with our partners. So we, those are engineering scale or um, those are first-of-a-kind prototypes who really start to look at scaling above the bench top to get to a, a system that is appropriate for subsequent engineering by industry. And it really looks at the system integration. And that is so important. If you look at the commercial applications, integration of, our, of the total system together is incredibly hard. And we have seen people struggle with this aspect. Biomass itself, if you think about agricultural residues, can be quite heterogeneous. And that brings challenges of how to be resilient, how to sort it, how to, to get to a controlled feedstock that enables conversion. And a cross-cutting across everything we do is strategic analysis and sustainability. Sustainability is so important to our sector. Let's, let's pause there for just a minute and, and kind of elaborate on this topic of sustainability. Let's, if you wouldn't mind, let's talk a little bit about the why. Why we do what we're doing. Why bioenergy? Why biomass? Why um, sustainability is so important? Uh, could you, why is it you show up at work? Why do your teammates bring that same kind of passion to, to this area of bio-based? Well, if you look at net petroleum import, imports into the U.S., that's net. It's not gross. Gross is an even larger number. It is over a billion dollars per year, net. And that's with all the advances that we've seen in looking at uh, shale gas, tar sands, uh, horizontal drilling, enhanced oil recovery to provide the U.S. with both um, with, with additional petroleum access. But even net today, or based on 2018, I should say, there's still significant amount of money going out of the U.S. to bring in petroleum streams into the U.S. Now, the Department of Energy is all about all the above energy solutions and I think biomass is a nice example of that. It is one of the many that contribute. And when you start looking at energy sectors, I see the power sector, electricity, has done a phenomenal job of diversifying that, bringing down the cost of renewable energy, bringing down the cost of natural gas as well to enable the consumers to have access to cheaper electricity in the U.S. The transportation sector, 
is such a challenge because it's not a stationary platform. Anything you do has to then address the mobile platform. Well, you can't really, and, and you're looking at emissions, you're looking at use of carbon, you're looking at who has the carbon. So with bioenergy, you look across the U.S. and you look at the many diverse forms of biomass. In fact, I will broaden that to biomass and wastes because traditionally we thought of terrestrial crops as agricultural residues, forest residues, and then we said, oh, and the energy crops are going to come, crops that we've modified that are solely for energy. And also other areas, those are the dry feedstocks, the wetter feedstocks, which will be waste food, Algae, algae has a lot of great opportunities. With its, the key thing there is productivity. But then we said, well, what about the wastes? There's a lot of municipal solid waste. There are a lot of food waste. We're even beginning, and within municipal solid waste, an area we're getting quite excited about at the moment is there are rags there. We know how to deal with rags. There's paper that can't be recycled, and I must be very clear on this. Anything that can be recycled should be recycled. But if it can't be recycled, then there's a role for the technologies in, in the field of bioenergy and, and bioproducts that we talk about. So effectively, we are the molecular biorecyclers because if on the macro level, you can break it down, grind it, sort it, that's recycling. But we break it down to the molecular level. So if you have a pizza box and it's pristine, that cardboard box can be recycled. But the minute you spill pizza sauce on the inside of that box, it now can't be recycled. But that is good carbon, both in the pasta sauce, pizza sauce, and the box itself. And we have carbon enabling our lives in so many forms. You look around, I ask anybody listening, look around their office or where they're listening from today, they might have a water container, a table, um, a phone, a laptop, paper in front of them. There's so much carbon, plastic, carpet, carpets around them. And that's only going to increase in the future. And what bioenergy does is bring, and waste streams, brings more sources of carbon to the mix. And it is domestic. And it can be cutting-edge technology, which then enables competitive advantage for the U.S. And I would put to you that some of the things we talk about, it's all about the viewpoint. An ecologist and a chemical engineer can look at a biorefinery and say very different things but want the same outcome. An ecologist looks at that biorefinery and says, look at those emissions from CO2 coming out of your biorefinery. How do you reduce that? A chemical engineer says, I need to maximize the carbon that's in my desired products. And the language is very specific. It sounds really different, but you, take a, you dive in at just one more level. What the chemical engineer said between the lines was, I want to minimize the carbon that's in waste streams because that's an expense for me. And the chemical engineer would love to take that CO2 stream and convert it into desired products. So they're saying the same thing. One is really focused on carbon efficiency. The other one is really focused on reduction of emissions. Both are saying the same thing, and it's a good thing for that biorefinery and for the bioenergy industry and for the United States of America. 
anything we can do to improve that kind of efficiency and lessen emissions and all of those kinds of things, looking at waste utilization and, and find uh, desirable products, uh, whether that be energy or materials, to make from that all great stuff. Even the way we put it together, think about those materials. Do we think about a linear economy where we use it once and we throw it away? Or will we prefer to have a circular economy where we bring it back around and we use it again? Inherently, biomass, if we're talking annuals, is in the, tr in the field growing or in the forest growing, uptaking waste gaseous carbon, nutrients from the soil, any nutrients that we put additionally onto the field, growing, we take that. We're cognizant of not, take, uh, not perturbing food and feed because the planet's population is growing and we need to address that. So biomass is inherently not the, and in most of the, the sources of carbon we consider, it's not the first use. It's the second or third use or the second or third revenue stream, which is a great thing as well. And it promotes the circular economy. Yeah. Relative to the circular economy and thinking about some of the issues of the day, uh, Beto is interested in new bio-based plastics and the ability to recycle and reuse these materials. Uh, Talk a little bit about your role or Beto's involvement in plastics. That's such a big topic of controversy or, or discussion in today's society. So let's first of all, we'll, we'll just parse that into two buckets. Right now, there's the petroleum-derived plastics, and they make our lives easier. The issue is they are so good that they're everywhere, and the amount that is actually recycled is minuscule. I, um, I was shocked as well. I dutifully put out my plastics every week in my little blue container. It's collected at the curb. I assumed that went off to be recycled. I subsequently found out that it, it's less than 10% is actually recycled. It's like 14 is taken, but of that, there's only a fraction that is actually of those plastics that are recycled. There are challenges with sorting the different types of plastics amongst, uh, separating them out, and the plastics in our recycling are often covered with all kinds of contaminants that might make sensing quite a challenge. We see that as a source of carbon. It is part of MSW. At the moment, large amounts are going into the ocean, large amounts are going into landfills, and that's a great source of carbon. Uh, a very wise person once told me that when you, have, when you have something you're trying to do, also try and solve another problem. And the aspect of this is people don't want to live next to a landfill. They don't want larger or more landfills. What if those landfills became resources of carbon and we could keep put less new plastics and sources of carbon into that landfill and even pull out or mine the landfill for the carbon that's already in there? One of the aspects here is there is 
uh, terrific work that is currently going on in the Advanced Manufacturing Office, which is uh, another office, technology office, within uh, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. They have a consortium called Remade, which looks at advanced sorting and mechanically breaking down the plastic, plastics, I should say, uh, so that then they can be reused. One of the ideas we're looking at at the moment and is actually out in a funding opportunity announcement currently on the streets. We're currently awaiting our um, people to submit proposals, final proposals on, on that competitive ask for proposal at the moment is what if you break down the plastics chemically or biologically? Now, why Beto? Why the Bioenergy Technologies Office? One of our core strengths with working with the people that we collaborate with, uh, the people that we fund, is biomass. They break down those three polymers. Plastics are polymers. How do we break them into oligomers and monomers? And then we could build them back up. How do we upcycle them? To currently, people tend to take the plastic and then in its second use, convert it into something, if it is converted for a second use, that's worth less value. If we could break it down to the molecular blocks, the building blocks, and then build it up into higher value products, that would be upcycling. That would then incentivize people to recycle more. And that's on the petroleum side. Additionally, we have an effort in the Bioenergy Technologies Office on bioadvantage products. One class of products is renewable plastics. Now, when it rains, you put on a coat, zip it up, so then you're surrounded by the coat and it has a structure and it keeps the rain off you. When you come back indoors, you unzip the coat, you change its structure, and now it opens up and you can put it on a hanger and put it away because that function is now over. What we would like to do is look at, can we introduce functionality into renewable um, plastics derived from biomass where we put in particular linkers, molecular linkers that are akin to zips or poppers that when the application or the use is over, we can then chemically or biologically trigger those to open up and the structure changes, which then enables recycling. So we see we need to learn if we're to make renewable plastics, one of the things you have to learn from is the existing plastics and have them designed for recyclability. And we think that that is an exciting new prospect. What are your thoughts about biodegradability? Is that an attribute that should be explored with regard to future plastics? I find the word, it's the word biodegradability, a fascinating word, and I wish to understand it more. It can be done correctly or it can be done incorrectly. Now, I think there's a continuum between you want an infinitely recyclable plastic. So that way it always goes back to its purpose and that's at what one far end of the, the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum is it is thoroughly degraded. But let's be clear about this. If you just degrade it into monomers that you can't see, you can't say you solve the problem. Because then the monomers, even though they're microscopic and you can't see them, they could still accumulate perhaps 
in animals or fish. And with biodegradability, there has to be this place in between where you make a table out of a plastic. It has to serve and be structurally, the structural integrity must remain in that plastic table until you're done with said table. So that could be several years in the elements outside because it's patio furniture and you want it to work for that number of years in the sun, in the rain. But then when you're done with it, you then want to say, oh, I want that to be broken down in a manner that then I can use for another source. Maybe it goes into mulching, broken down, and it can be used, say, plastic covering on fields. You turn that into a mulch. But even there, you want to know what is the optimal form of the plastic to enable it to safely go into the soil and not have any negative impact on the environment. And that's where another, we come back to this sustainability. There, knowing the species and how the species is transported throughout the entire system, maybe of a circular economy, is so important. Because if you make something that then is consumed by deer and concentrated in the stomachs of deer and causes problems, that's an issue. When we look at a circular economy, you have to look at all aspects and all the different perturbations that you can have on the system, and you want to have no negative impacts. In fact, you'd like to bring positive impacts. And I don't think, I know some people have the answer, but here in the Bioenergy Technologies Office, we're looking forward to doing a workshop on this topic and unpacking what is the latest thinking on biodegradability and what are the best ways to get it right? Because you can get it wrong. And, and so, I mean, it, it seems to me like biodegradability to some degree informs that zipper that you're talking about. You know, that there, there, there are some natural systems that, that facilitate that, that decomposition, but what you're suggesting is a new designer approach where you actually build into the plastic this capability to have it come apart. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I'll give you a parallel, if you will. There was some very nice research done in the Office of Science uh, in the Bioenergy Research Centers where they were looking at, in plants, how do you reduce lignin in plants because lignin can be a challenge to break down to make biofuels and bioproducts. And they had to look at which lignin they wanted to break down. Lignin is very important to the structure and particularly to keeping the water channels in the plant open. So if you take all the lignin out, it'll look like an overcooked spaghetti noodle and the plant won't look very healthy. And the channels to, put water, to have water go up and down through the plant and to deliver nutrients will have collapsed. However, if you take, keep those channels open, keep the lignin around those channels, but remove some of the other lignin, there's an opportunity there. And they've talked also about introducing into the lignin poppers or zippers, because it is, it's, a, it's a polymer, it's a heteropolymer, so there's no regular units of monomers or like Lego bricks in that polymer, but it is rich in chemical functionality. It's got lots of aromatic rings in there and it, it offers the opportunity to be 
a truly great starting point for bioproducts. The problem is if you apply heat to it, you fragment it and you get hundreds to thousands of fragments and then the separation costs are just escalate and it doesn't become cost effective. Using a biological system that is very selective, you can take apart key linkages and make a smaller number of derivatives that then becomes economic to then take on to products. What they're doing in the Office of Science is introducing key linkages that enable very specific linkages to come apart so you take apart the fragments and you keep the rich chemical functionality that, that exists initially in biomass. And then you leverage that. So that's how we came to the idea of bioadvantage products, products that play to the strengths in biomass. So over the past several years, you've had an initiative uh, referred to as the Agile Biorefinery or Biofoundry. And um, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've learned in your work with synthetic biology, biology at that point? Yes. And the key drivers of the Agile Biofoundry were to, is to use synthetic biology to overexpress the products or the building blocks that you want to make through the metabolic pathways um, in an organism and to underexpress the side products that you don't want and to do it in a manner that you accelerate the breakthroughs. And so therefore that would be cost saving and uh, the actual products would enter the market quicker, which is, would empower the bioeconomy. So this is molecular control of organisms. And so the, um, the synthetic biology, I mean, biology is particularly with organisms and enzymes is, is in such, such a phenomenal period of time right now. We're seeing the characterization tools that one has access to and the big data that is thus generated from the omics, different, the different forms of characterization of of the organism itself and the products it makes and its side pathways and how it interacts and its both primary, secondary, and ternary structure and the detailed understanding is then feeding into extremely complex models using high-performance computing to, to build the structure of these models and get, so basically mapping the, 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 the actual DNA of the plant, manipulating that, and actually using artificial intelligence to drive that cycle faster because there are so many permutations here. It's, it's driving the, the Agile Biofoundry is seeking to do all of that and to do it on an open platform. It leverages the tools in synthetic biology that have been developed by the Office of Science and then the National Science Foundation and applies it to real-world problems. It has collaborations with universities and industry and it enables uh, not just collaborations with big companies, uh, small companies as well, and such that those learnings can be distributed broadly across the entire bioenergy sector. And we've seen a um, very positive response from industry with regard to the actual biofoundry. Yeah, that that sounds like terrifically I mean, exciting. I I'm just sitting here thinking if I were a young person wanting to begin my career or looking to begin my career and 
was trying to find a place where I could make a difference in the world, that what you're talking about sure sounds like a place where someone could have a tremendous impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the team that are directly plugged into the Agile Bio Foundry are um, so impassioned about it. And it, it's always a joy to present or talk about the Agile Bio Foundry. And, and there is a parallel in uh, there's another consortium on uh, chemical catalysis, chemcat bio and biology, and biology that looks at, so enzymes are the organic catalyst, the catalyst being something that reduces the activation energy so that the process can go faster and you get more of your desired product and greater selectivity and higher yields. The inorganic equivalent is catalysts. And that consortium brings together experts looking at the fundamental aspects of catalysis, leveraging the Office of Science and NSF again, and understanding like the catalytic active center. What, what is the species that really matters for the turnover of the catalyst when the, when the pieces of biomass come in? And how do we stop that catalyst from deactivating? So the two run in parallel. One deals with biological systems and one deals with the with the inorganic catalyst, and both are driving solutions to market faster, but also driving conversion efficiencies. How do you use more of your biomass to make your desired products? And uh, both use incredible um, characterization te uh, techniques, leveraging perhaps some of the Office of Science uh, beamlines and facilities at the national labs to do detailed characterization of catalysts and organisms, high-performance computing to model, so to inform you of the complex uh, reaction that you're looking at to help expand your thinking about it and drive towards uh, innovative solutions. I would say that those two areas are two wonderful areas to get into. A third area I would touch on is if you don't, and probably I would say in the same way, you were very quick to notice Agile Biofoundry. That sounds like a great place, synthetic biology for, for young scientists to go to and young engineers to go to. Perhaps the, the less appreciated place for scientists and engineers to go to is in feedstocks processing. If you get it wrong, there is no conversion. Initially, one might cast it as that's really less glamorous. There is a phenomenal opportunity to look at the white space of the physics and chemistry of processing biomass as you take it to a feedstock and you understand the changes that you're imparting to it with every time you touch it and you process it to enable conversion. And so that's another consortium we've set up called the Feedstock Conversion Interface Consortium. And I do think for people entering into the field, one of the key things that biomass has, and I would say this is beyond biomass and the sector, some of the pivotal challenges are the interfaces of different sciences. For the Feedstock Conversion Interface Consortium, you need experts in feedstocks. You need polymer scientists, material scientists, people with experts in, um, in metals. You need... Um, chemists, chemical engineers, biologists, 
all working on different aspects, bringing different perspectives to the same large challenge. And I think if we go back to the plastics question, it isn't just the core plastic itself. There are many other challenges in there. I do believe sorting, advanced sorting is going to be critical, and how you deal with the contaminants is going to be absolutely critical. And the trend that keeps popping up for me is that the, the tough challenges, and that's where you want to be for the impact, are, are at these interfaces where you need diverse perspectives. And so being open to you've just learned one particular area or you've just done one unit in your degree and you think, all right, I'll just do that and I'll do that for the rest of my career. Being open to, no, I'm going to expand and I'm going to learn as I go and every day is an opportunity to learn something new and to interact with people from different perspectives so that we can solve big problems. I think that's pivotal to many areas. Yeah, I... I I can appreciate the, the balance of complexity that you are describing with the need to, to facilitate communication across these different systems and, and, and needing to be literate in lots of different sciences. It sounds to me like uh, a massive undertaking. It is. But it's also an awful lot of fun. And I'll give you another example. A consortium that we're working on with the Vehicle Technology Office is the co-optimization of fuels and engines. Engines have been optimized on the petroleum fuel that they're given. Pull up to the pump. Do you want to put 87, 89, 91, 93 in your vehicle? Do you want to put diesel in your vehicle? What if you ask the vehicle what fuel does it want? What's its optimum fuel? That gives you extra degrees of freedom. There might be a new optimal solution. And so the Bioenergy Technologies Office said, oh, we like to make biofuels, and we can make drop, we do make drop-in biofuels. So drop-in, so we match the molecules. And then it's infrastructure compatible, and you could pump it into your vehicle, and you would notice no difference. Engines people were saying, oh, how do we reduce emissions? How do we drive to engine efficiency? Transportation of vehicles are the second largest expense after your house. A lot of money goes into transport. How do you go? Think about how ordering online has changed traffic on the roads and all the vans that are needed to deliver all those goods that you now order online and you don't go to a brick and mortar shops that much. And it's an exciting time for transportation with, we're on the cusp of electric vehicles, fuel cell vehicles. We're seeing over a million EVs sold in the U S and we're beginning to look at uh, autonomous vehicles. And so we started thinking about, well, what can we do more with the engine? And so we took a step back and we said, let's look at all the possible molecules that one could make, which ones help us with advanced. And initially, we looked at light-duty vehicles for a spark ignition, um, downsized boosted engine. How could we drive 
10% extra engine efficiency by choosing the molecules and changing the blend of the fuel itself. And we've shown that technically you can increase efficiency by 10% by blending in these molecules. And we five groups of five families of molecules. There are 10 molecules that we've looked at. They're now down to, I believe, eight sets of molecules and four families. Uh, there are reports coming on that this year. It's a fascinating question. And it also pointed to, it was the first time we'd put biologists, chemists, chemical engineers, engine people, fuel specialists in a room and said, if we could make any fuel, what fuel would you want? And then we started to, and then we started talking about, oh, biologists, chemists, can you make that molecule? Well, I can't quite make that one because the sugar ring opens in this way, but I can give you that molecule and maybe the alcohol function is in one place, but instead of having a methyl grouping or a chemical grouping two bonds away, I can only do three bonds away. What does that structural isomer mean to the fuel operation? And we started looking at the term is retrosynthetic analysis. How do you go backwards from that molecule to get to the optimal way to make it? And that was a fascinating exercise and another illustration of the different perspectives posed on these really big questions. As I think about optimization of fuels, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of what we think of as gasoline is actually something like, what, 100 different molecules? Absolutely. It's a distribution of molecules typically centered around like a C8 cut as the center of that normal distribution. And then jet is centered around like a C12 with a normal distribution or a Gaussian distribution around that. And then diesel centered around like a CT, C16 normally. And but so there are tails on both sides and it makes a distribution of molecules. And, and with bio, you're more likely to be much more precise than that. If you're producing ethanol, you've got ethanol. Yes, but you have pros and you have cons for that. Okay. If, if your last step is catalysis, you'll probably make a distribution. Okay. And that can be useful because I'll point out one technology. Um, Pacific Northwest National Lab have been working with a company called Lancetech to develop a catalyst technology that takes ethanol and catalytically converts it to jet fuel. So it has a distribution of molecules that are ideal for jet. And they were able to, Lanzatech was able to take that fuel and get it ASTM certified to be blended up to 50% in jet engines. And in October 2018, so now in 19, they flew a jet from Orlando, Florida to Gatwick in London with that particular fuel, that fuel actually came from steel mill gas effluent. So that's CO with a small amount of hydrogen coming out of a steel mill that their organism, that's syngas, their organism takes that syngas and turns it into ethanol. And then the PNNL technology takes that ethanol, converts that into jet fuel, a drop in jet fuel. And that makes a distribution. So yes, you can make a molecule and if you look at the specs for jet fuel, there are so many different things that you have to get right. I don't know how familiar you are with jet fuel, but critical things like if you're, if you're 30,000 feet, the cloud point 
freezing point of your fuel or when your fuel becomes cloudy is very important. If it becomes cloudy, the fuel injectors clog and your jet engine stops, to, stops working. And at 30,000 feet, that cannot happen. So there are really tight specifications about what a jet fuel has to be and how it performs. And from what we've seen so far, a singular molecule doesn't seem to be able to satisfy all the different specifications. So there you actually want families of uh, molecules or distributions. There are some biological pathways. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. They tend to actually take Maybe you make a molecule that is eight carbons long, and so then it has a chance of making one that's eight and doubling it at 16, and then one at 24 and one at 48, and they take that family together. Or you take one molecule and only lower amounts are allowed to be or are permitted to be blended in. If you want to go with larger amounts, it's going to be one, more than one molecule to heat, hit all those incredibly tight specifications. We're getting close to the end of our, our time. And I, I, I want to hear your definition or Beto's definition of the bioeconomy. What, what does that term mean to you or to your office? So the bioeconomy has been worked on extensively by the Biomass Research and Development Board. So that's co-led by Department of Energy and USDA. And the other members of the committee are, uh, of that board are EPA, Department of Transportation, Department of the Navy, Department of Interior, National Science Foundation, and the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And they've been working on the bioeconomy. And the definition they've adopted is a general definition of the bioeconomy is the global industrial transition of sustainably utilizing renewable aquatic and terrestrial biomass resources in energy, intermediate and final products for economic, environmental, social, and national security benefits. Within this definition, the Bioeconomy Initiative, this is the initiative set out by the Biomass Research and Development Board, focuses on biofuels, bioproducts, and biopower produced from renewable biomass materials and wastes. So that's the definition as defined by the Biomass Research and Development Board. Is of note, there are reports and definitions of the bioeconomy from many different countries. There's a very nice one from France, from Finland, from South Africa, from South Korea. They all have their own merits. Obviously, we're most familiar with the one from the U.S. It's focused on, um, so it's, it's a three-part installment to release the bioeconomy initiative in the U.S. that was done by the Biomass Research and Development Board. In February 2016 was the Federal Activities Report on the Bioeconomy. Basically, the eight agencies taking a snapshot of what were they doing in R&D and development and demonstration across the agencies currently. And then in November 2016, the Billion Ton Bioeconomy Initiative Challenges and Opportunities Report was released. That took feedback from over 400 uh, participants, pulling in what they thought the challenges and opportunities for bioeconomy could be. And the third installment was the Bioeconomy Initiative Implementation Framework, and it aims to increase government accountability and efficiency 
maximize interagency coordination on bioeconomy research and other activities, and accelerate innovative and sustainable technologies that harness America's biomass resources. So the implementation plan came out in March 2019. That's the new document. Under the Biomass Research and Development Board, there are interagency working groups that are digging in and looking at aspects of how they can contribute to the bioeconomy. For instance, there's an advanced algal systems interagency working group conducting R&D to address challenges related to scale-up biotechnology tools, strain development, harvesting, agronomy strategies, as well as enabling best uses for micro and macro algae and develop techno-economic models to inform research, coordinate guidance to make permit-applicable processes more transparent. Connected to the Biomass R&D Board, there is a technical advisory committee that's a typically 30 members from academia and industry and nonprofit organizations. It advises the secretaries of energy and agriculture, and it oversees the Biomass Research and Development Initiative. That's a... Um, that is a competitive funding opportunity that is run jointly from by USDA and DOE. And in between, um, in between, uh, underneath, or sorry, between the interagency working groups of the Biomass R&D Board and the members of the Biomass R&D Board is an operations committee, and they meet uh, weekly to look at how to move the different agencies forward. Uh, I can give you an example of this year for the first time, the agencies have been looking at their topics for the small business innovation research grants and how we can make those more synergistic and leverage each other by sharing before they're released across the agencies uh, who is doing what that year and how we can work off each other. Well, just like all of these different scientists need to know how to work together, certainly all of the agencies that make up the federal government that have interest in an advanced bioeconomy, uh, likewise need to have a game plan for working together. And this implementation framework that you reference does a nice job of articulating some of those priorities and, and opportunities for, for growth. Yeah. I, I feel like I need to, to a compliment you on your mastery of so many important topics and systems and, and what you've shared with, with us today on BioBase Radio is, is really impressive. And my, my question now is, we're, we're at Ohio State University here, but... Uh, I'm a part of a consortium of over 20 universities helping to create those leaders of tomorrow. And I'm just wondering what kind of advice you have for those young people that, that want to make a difference in the world and are interested in bio-based technologies and, and renewability and sustainability. And what what are your thoughts on how they can best prepare themselves to be a participant in this industry, in this field? Well, first of all, I have to be clear about this. Uh, I love the area. Thank you for your kind comments. All the work is the team 
I'm just fortunate enough to be able to say good things about great people. That's a leadership lesson right there. Pay attention. Got it. Go on. The students that are in, a, in the consortium, that's already a step forward. A consortium will bring the quality of work that you bring from teams through the cross-pollination of different perspectives on such a large challenge that we face. It's so much higher than the individual singular scientist that doesn't work in a team. So whether you're in a team working with others or you're in a consortium, which is often an ideal situation where you're exposed to many different forms of thinking with people coming from many different uh, disciplines, I find that I would recommend that. Be open to new ideas. Do stay on top of the literature and seeing the new innovations, the, the trade um, magazines as well. Do engage at conferences. There's some great bioenergy conferences that are out there. It's great to be in front of a poster. You get to meet um, some really awesome people walk past and question you with a different perspective you probably never thought of about the work that you're engaged in. Those are great times. And continue learning. It's very... It's very clear when I walk into the office that the, that the people who are working are very passionate about the area. And I, I know the same It can be said for anybody at ISU, particularly in the bioenergy sector. The passion is there. The, the drive to make a difference, to have an impact. We're on the cusp of something that's truly amazing and enabling our nation to use more of the domestic resources that we have. We've shown multiple times and with increasing levels of fidelity that there is over a billion tons of biomass that is readily available in the U.S. Uh, sorry, there is a potential for over a billion tons of biomass in the U.S. And through best land management practices and sustainability, we can drive that forward. And there's opportunities to continually advance and embrace different carbon carriers. That's what we're currently going through at the moment. What if we use CO2 as our feedstock? I mean, there's a, there's a challenge for people. Yes, CO2 is a lovely thermodynamic sink. And so how do you dig out of that sink? How do you activate CO2? Algae does it. Plants do it. What can we learn from that? If we can tap into things like that, then think about the amount of carbon we could have. Think about everything that we could produce. Okay. Well, um, Brad, I do want to give you instructions. That little piece that he said about ISU, we'll take that out, given that this is Ohio State University. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Can't we all just get along? <laughs> No, that is Ohio fine. State and Iowa State are two great schools. They do a lot of great bioenergy <laughs> work. Let's be clear about that. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, giving us this time today and, and sharing your insights and experiences. And I, I think there's a tremendous amount of content here that uh, can serve as sources for inspiration for many young people and, and others in industry that are working to try and help solve some of these problems. So really appreciate your time and, and uh, all you do really to uh, 
help move this whole sector forward. We really appreciate it. So It's the partners we work with, and I'll leave the people that work in this area with, we are challenge rich. We don't need to worry about, is there enough work to do? We have plenty of challenges. So if you want challenges and to push yourself, come work in the bioenergy sector. We've got plenty of challenges. Yeah, yeah. But the impact we're going to have is going to be phenomenal. Go get them, Jonathan. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for listening to BioBase Radio. And thank you to our guest, Jonathan Mayo, for being on the show today. BioBase Radio is a production of the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University. Produced in association with the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. BioBase Radio is hosted by Denny Hall and produced and edited by Casey Needham and Brad Collins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, plant a seed with a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts.